like to welcome you back for session three of this, this authenticity event. I'll get it out, don't worry. On baptism, we're having some fun during the break. So uh, I hope that you've watched uh, session one and session two where we laid some foundations, started talking about some practical issues. In this session, we actually want to talk about uh, the act of baptism itself. Some of this is very practical uh, as well as we can continue any of the thoughts that have been in the first two sessions because as you can imagine, we could, we could talk for hours and hours and we should talk for hours and hours about this issue. And so we're just hitting some highlights for you today. What we hope is that as you're, you're watching this or maybe you're using this with your staff or you're using this in an equipped church with uh, some interns, um, that this creates conversation and discussion points for you to, to branch off in your own discussions. Let's talk about who should baptize, who can baptize somebody. Uh, is, what are the rules? What should be the rules? Are there any rules about who can actually be the baptizer uh, and, and baptize the baptizee? Dr. Harper, is there anything from history that tells us tradition, uh, developments about how we as Baptists have decided who should be able to baptize? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, and it's a fairly complicated question as well. Um, good question because there is some evidence out there, but it's complicated because of the simplicity of the answer, and that is among Baptists, generally speaking, ordained individuals, that is, pastors of local congregations, have been in charge of administering baptism for people who make professions of faith in Christ. However, and this is, this is where things get complicated, the lines get blurred under some circumstances. If, for example, you're in colonial America, America in the 1700s, and your church is small and you don't have a pastor, but you have people who need baptism, there have been incidences where uh, they borrowed other preachers. And that might not sound so odd, except for the fact some of the preachers that they borrowed were Presbyterian. And so they would ask a Presbyterian to come and administer baptism by immersion because they didn't have a pastor. And when the Philadelphia Association actually heard a question on that, they said, is that valid baptism? And the collective wisdom of the association was, yes, that's acceptable. But that same association fielded a different question under different circumstances, and they said, well, what happens if you have someone who needs baptism, there is nobody else, and somebody from the congregation baptizes that individual? And they said, no, that's invalid baptism. Or the word they used was not invalid, they used irregular. That's not exactly within the realm of what we're looking for. And the difference being the person who was administering the baptism uh, was himself an ordained minister. Um, fast forward that into the 20th century, it's still an issue today. Um, before we get to the 20th century, let's go to the 19th. What happens to converts in the American Civil War? A number of preachers weren't wondered about that. They say, okay, we have a man who makes a profession of faith on the battlefield. And we want to go ahead because you never know what's going to happen from day to day. We want to make sure that he's obedient. He wants to make sure that he's obedient. Is battlefield baptism valid? Because you're not baptizing them into a local congregation per se. The collective wisdom of most Baptist preachers in the middle of the 19th century was 
we can make an exception for that. That's irregular, it's different, but we can handle that because of the circumstances at hand. And into the 20th century now, it's an even more wide open issue because sometimes, uh, and you guys have seen this, I'm sure, you have whole families that wanna be baptized together. Uh, you get together in the backyard, you start sharing testimonies. If you have a swimming pool, six or eight people jump in, they want you to baptize them in their pool. Is that valid baptism? And I'll leave that to Dr. Quarles to answer. Let, let me layer this a little bit because you may be watching this seriously. And we would have students here on campus who would watch this and they'd say, what's the big deal? Yeah. They'd say, and they'd say the same thing about who administers the Lord's Supper, by the way. And we had that conversation. You need to watch the videos about the Lord's Supper that we did with Dr. Whitfield, Dr. Ecker, um, because we, we talk about that as well there. Um, well, the issue, I think, is whether or not you're relating um, baptism in any way to the authority of a local church. Some of this has to do with church membership again, and also perhaps even church discipline and accountability may be a better word. And so does the person who is baptizing need to be the ordained person, or can they be someone authorized by the authority of that local body? For example, I've seen fathers baptize their sons, grandfathers baptized their grandkids, and the fathers and grandfathers weren't the pastors. They were just, they were active members, I pray, of the church, you know, and, and they, you know, they allowed basically any friend or any relative to baptize, it seemed like, in those congregations. So just, just to help you layer that, I had heard this story from Dr. Harper before about the, the Baptist using Presbyterian pastors, and I knew that was interesting. I wanted to get that on film. Uh, Dr. Quarles, any comment about any of this so far? Are, are, are not. Well, I guess I have more questions and comments at this point. <laughs> uh, I was reading some of the older Baptist works just last night on this question, and I was looking at the First London Confession in the article on baptism, where they dealt with the issue of the identity of the administrator. And if I understood, uh, the position was that any teaching disciple could baptize. And there was an insistence that the authority for the teaching disciple was not derivative of a church or an ordaining body or, or anything like that. It, it seemed to imply to me that the view held by those theologians was that if you were a disciple maker, you could be a disciple baptizer. Uh, I noticed a similar view in John Gill's work. He actually describes baptism and this is going to be a little bit scandalous, but he says baptism is not a church ordinance, uh, that it's actually an ordinance practiced outside of the church as a prelude to church involvement. And he said that the decision as to whether or not to baptize an individual was completely in the hands of the administrator. Uh, the church couldn't tell an administrator to baptize someone he was uncomfortable baptizing, uh, and they couldn't prohibit him from baptizing someone he desired to baptize. That seems pretty healthy to me, biblically. But, and, and I don't disagree necessarily, but young pastors, make certain that you're having this conversation with your church leaders, because I am sure that there is a traditional way that your church would perceive this issue 
and that you would want to have a good discussion and healthy teaching and dialogue about this, I think, to reach a good conclusion as a congregation about, because there's a, there's a practical issue here that, and frankly, I struggled with it as a pastor over and over again, this connection between baptism and local church membership. It's a bigger issue to me, maybe no one but me, because when does a person become a member of the church? And if they're, if they're coming as a non-believer, they've become a believer, that doorway has very often been that act of baptism. When you're baptized, you become a member. Now, with some covenant church membership processes, there's more to it than just the, the act of baptism, which I think is actually a healthier way to perceive things to where baptism is certainly a prerequisite, but it's not necessarily the whole prerequisite for, for membership. But these are discussions that you need to have. And these are conversations, even as a, a new pastor, you need to have a search committees to, before you go to have a clear understanding of this is where I am on baptism. Where are you as a congregation? Would you be open to these conversations? Because I, I know a young pastor could get in trouble very quickly, um, maybe rightfully so, but still get in trouble um, if he, he tries to press some non-traditional perspectives immediately and forcefully upon a congregation. Any other comments about those kinds of issues or that kind of subject matter? Well, I have, um, you know, obviously as, as pastors, shepherds, even as followers of Jesus, we want the, the scripture to be what, what determines our actions and the basis of our actions. But we have to be honest that our, our tradition does influence uh, our practice as well. And, you know, I've only been a member of three churches uh, throughout my in, entire life. And, and so those, th- those practices of those churches have influenced me. Now, I've seen situations where uh, pastors were very open to others' parents, as you say, um, baptizing a child, uh, perhaps uh, a, a friend who led another friend to Christ and the, and the one who led them to Christ to be the one that is baptizing them. My, my personal conviction, because I do believe that baptism and church membership are closely tied uh, and that sort of thing. And, and that while they are coming through baptism to identify with Christ, they're also identifying with his church and not just in general, but this particular body who, again, as you even tied it earlier to church discipline, uh, will say, look, I, we, we witnessed as, as, as testimony of your faith in Christ, the act of baptism. And so now we're holding you accountable now for this present sin, for what you said was the case back then, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and so because Christ has given the ordinances, uh, at least my understanding of Scripture is he's given the ordinances of Scripture, I mean, ordinances to the church and given elders uh, within the church to, to seek to lead in obedience to these commands that he's given. You know, our practice has at least been that those, uh, as Dr. Harper said, those who are ordained are the ones who actually perform that. But another way of, um, of I think, maybe helping to demonstrate the importance of this, or maybe another key person was a, a part of this. And this sort of thing is I've, I've heard other situations where they might have that person who led them to the Lord there with them, you know, or, or nearby, not necessarily being the ones participating or actively baptizing that candidate, but there is a, as maybe what you might call a closer proximity um, witness to say, I was there when, when this uh, event happened. And so now I'm here also in both in support of and witness to uh, this this now act of obedience um, in light of it. Let, let me layer a couple of things, and I'll get right to you, Chuck. Uh, and you don't have to address what I'm getting ready to layer, but I got to throw this on the table because I want people to think about these things. So, should should they baptize at the youth retreat? Should you baptize on a short term mission trip? Uh, uh, is there such a thing as private baptism? 
Um, you know, and so when uh, when the college group is off uh, having their weekend ski event, is it okay if someone on that event is saved to baptize them in the jacuzzi at the lodge? Um, you know, are there any rules to this, and and how do we approach this whole issue? Some of these get tied together. Chuck, well, I'm going to jump back just a little bit to the administrator baptism question. I do think they're related uh, to where we're going now. Um, it would certainly be a mistake to rely on First London Confession, John Gill, that kind of thing for our guidance. But I think what both groups were doing. Uh, was looking to Scripture and inferring from it the proper identity of the administrator. Uh, because throughout our Baptist tradition, we have affirmed that the Great Commission wasn't just given to the Twelve Apostles. It's given to every believer. But the Great Commission entails not only the command to make disciples, but also to baptize. And on that exegetical basis, I would be very, very hesitant to limit uh, the prerogative of administering baptism to just the ordained, uh, uh, just those authorized by a particular church body. I think that's how our Baptist ancestors were thinking when they made those statements. And, and that makes sense. Uh, so, so real life scenarios, I've, I've actually faced those scenarios. Um, the youth go off for a weekend. Some young people are saved during the weekend, and the youth pastor, whatever he was called, <laughs> they're cooler names for that now, uh, took him down to the lake and, and baptized him. Came back. <clears throat> uh, some of my church leaders were not pleased with that event. Um, some parents were not pleased with that event. Uh, and so any comments about any of those kinds of practical issues, uh, this may just, that may just be a warning shot for those who are listening to say, oh, I never even thought about that as being a problem. Maybe that is a problem and maybe that's enough. But any other comments on where baptism ought to happen uh, in front of whom should baptism happen? Any comments like that? And there's silence. <laughs> I think that the early church saw baptism as your public confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And the more public, the better. Uh, not just an ordinance administered in a local church baptistry only before the eyes of the faithful few, but preferably before the eyes of unbelievers as well. Uh, I would have hesitation about the youth event that you've described, uh, but per perhaps for different reasons than some others. I wouldn't be concerned that it was done through a youth group uh, in a particular setting. My concern would be uh, whether or not there was proper vetting, mm -hmm. a clear articulation of the gospel, that kind of thing. Uh, but I wouldn't turn up my nose at it because they were youth or this was a youth event. Uh, there are some uh, Christian young people who understand the gospel a lot more clearly than some in their 40s and 50s. Let me, let me share this story. Let me change gears just a little bit. Let's get very practical for a few minutes before this session ends because after this session, we're actually going to do a demonstration of, uh, of a way to baptize. So 
One of the things that we did, and I actually learned this through some consulting work that I did. Um, I, I've had the privilege of consulting hundreds and hundreds of churches personally and studied many, many more. So this part of my life for many years and I've seen a lot of different things, practices, a lot of different methodologies. And over the years, I saw a group do this and I really liked it. So I stole it, frankly, I always tried to give them credit. And I, I when in the pre-baptismal section, um, I mentioned this before at the end of the last session that we would have people begin to write out their testimony. We gave them an outline. Uh, we'll make an outline available to you on the website. There's no, nothing special about that outline by any means. Uh, you could write that outline in five minutes. But we began to have them write that out. We did not tell them what to write. We gave them an outline to help guide them. We would have them give us that out that testimony back, and we often would help them just edit it a little bit, just just clean it up. Plus, we you know there's a practicality on this. We were looking for a certain time frame for for a written version of that to be shared. Now, in today's world, I've seen many churches do this different ways. You might do this by video and have them share their own testimony via video, and then the actual worship service when the baptism was occurring, they would come on a screen and you would see them do the video. In the old days, before we had technology, uh, back when Dr. Harper uh, had hair, we, were, um, we would just have someone stand in the pulpit and read their testimony, someone who was near and dear to them, maybe the person who led them to Christ or a family member or a friend. And it, it, it was a very moving moment for them to read the testimony. The person would be standing in the baptistry and someone else would be reading their testimony. But this way, that person is able to really say what they want to say. They're not panicking in front of a crowd, and they can really articulate the words they want to share in a clear way. So whether it's them by video or someone else through reading, it was very moving. And, and this became our call to worship. Um, and because God was really blessing us in some situations, there were enough people who had been properly prepared for baptism. And so we were able to begin every Sunday morning service this way, almost. And so we would have just rows of lost friends that they would invite and family. And so we just, you know, one of them would be next <laughs> in a sense. But this was, I called this sermon number one in the service and it was the call to worship. So we'd be, we began baptizing one or two uh, at the beginning of the service. Now that's because God was gracious in saving people and not everyone has that opportunity and privilege to do it that often. But to really make that a, a meaningful moment and a special moment for them to really share their salvific uh, experience as well as what they say about baptism because part of the testimony is what does baptism mean? And by being baptized today, this is what I'm saying to you uh, as a congregation and to the world. And of course, we post these on websites and things like that as well. And over the years, I've kept these testimonies in a book uh, from all, those, all the written ones. It's really fun to go back and read and remember when people were baptized. And they got to keep a copy as well, and it was, it's meaningful to them. And so they have a testimony for later if they have someone, if they wonder. And here, here's where I wrote out in my own words my experience. Now, some of this is traditional, some's not. When they were in the baptistry, I still had them share a few things audibly live in front of the congregation because there were those who felt like that was absolutely necessary and important for them to say yes twice or something like that before they were baptized. But 
but it was a very meaningful experience. And I, and I know many of you have much more creative ways of doing that, but to really think about how can we are to don't, don't rush through this, make this a, a moment where that person really is testifying of what Christ has done in their life and what baptism means and uh, make it a very special moment in the worship. And you talk about the evangelistic opportunities. Um, we would have people come that day that we would have never seen probably, and we had the opportunity to reach out to them and follow up with them afterwards. Any other just practical examples like that of how, how you've seen this done well, you think this is meaningful, uh, the actual act of baptism in a worship experience? Well, practically, you know, we've done several of the kinds of things that you're describing, whether um, live testimony at that moment, in some cases from the baptistry, uh, in other cases, um, and, and always at least in minimal fashion, you know, uh, asking for, you know, something along the lines of what is your testimony? Uh, even if it's simply Jesus is Lord, you know, or something like that, or, or asking it in a question form, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And is it your desire to walk in obedience to him? Something along those lines and get a response. Um, we've also used video uh, and that sort of thing where they're sharing their testimony with the congregation in that kind of way. Um, you know, the only thing that I would uh, provide a word of caution about, and you used the word a moment ago, creativity in, in a, a demonstration of this, um, and, and it's a bit of a concern, but Dr. Harper and I were talking about this a little bit ago, my, my word of caution would be, don't be so overly creative that, that, the, that the impact that you're seeking to uh, elicit from the event is the creative nature in which you are demonstrating it more than just simply the spiritual gravitas of the moment. Uh, because I think that it, it is that believer's profession of faith in Christ and their volitional act of obedience that is the big deal. And, and, and don't be so creative in your, in your demonstration of it that you lose that gravitas of what this really is that's happening in front of you. Um, and so, um, so I think that, you know, is just, uh, just a simple word of caution. The only other thing I would say is about that evangelistic, uh, I just want to reemphasize what you said, the evangelistic nature and opportunity of this. I remember not a few years ago, the uh, Baptist state convention of North Carolina even provided a resource for pastors that, uh, had uh, a digital file of, um, a baptism invitation that the candidate could then take and use uh, to send out to family members, key friends, work associates, neighbors, that sort of thing that says, this is a huge issue in my life. This is a huge step in my life and I, you are important to me and I would love for you to be a part of this, knowing that the gospel will be proclaimed both verbally and visually. And so I, I would just strongly encourage us not to miss that opportunity. That's good. Um, when we come back, um, I'm going to be in the water and, uh, I'm going to demonstrate, uh, one way to baptize and talk through some specific issues, uh, about, uh, the act of baptism itself, some very practical issues. Uh, and so, but before we go, um, any other, any other word that you want to give, I want to thank all of you for participating in these sessions. Um, we've just scratched the surface, obviously, of a lot of issues here, but um, we look forward to, to you reading some of the resources that we'll put as downloadables and questions that you might have that you can email us about and we'll try to follow up on. 
any closing comments, any words of encouragement or anything that you feel like we left out before we go? I'll just say a word of burden. You know, the latest annual church uh, profile statistics say as many as 25% or more of our Southern Baptist churches in a 12-month period baptize no one. Uh, Other statistics say the only uh, demographic group that has demonstrated an increase in number of baptisms since the 1970s are those, if I recall, are under six or under five. Um, That should cause our hearts to be heavy. And and, and I would simply say that we we just really pray uh, diligently, fervently to the Lord that he would cause us as people who talk uh, prolifically about evangelism and missions, that he would so burden our hearts to be far more faithful in our evangelistic practice and, and, and obeying Christ's command to not only proclaim the gospel, but then to baptize these uh, new believers that God would cause us to be ever more passionate about seeing people come to Christ and follow him in believer's baptism. I actually know of churches where they have a large number of attenders who've never joined. And I just want to encourage pastors to, to talk to them about why. Why have you never become a member of the church? For some of them, baptism is the barrier, actually. Um, some of them have come from other denominational backgrounds. Some just don't see the need. Some don't want the accountability. But to have these conversations uh, and to share from the pulpit these conversations uh, about how significant baptism is and what a testimony it is of what Christ has done for us. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for being here and for all you do here at Southeastern and uh, look forward to seeing you in that next session. We're going to demonstrate some things about, about baptism. I have a poor victim who's going to allow me to hold him under just until the bubbles stop. It'll be okay. <laughs> we'll see you in the next session.